Hello, I'm Elena DelVal, and this is the HispanicNPR.com podcast. My guest today is Miriam Schulman, who is author of Artpreneur, the step-by-step guide to making a sustainable living from your creativity. We will discuss marketing lessons from Artpreneur. Miriam is a New York artist and founder of the Inspiration Place and the Artists Incubator Coaching Program. She seeks to help artists from emerging to professional develop their skills, tap into their creativity, and grow thriving art businesses. She left a lucrative Wall Street career in the wake of 9-11 to pursue art full-time. Her art and story have been featured in Forbes, What Women Create, The New York Times, Art of Man, Art Journaling, Magazine, as well as on NBC's Parenthood in the Amazon series Hunters with Al Pacino. According to her promotional materials, her podcast, The Inspiration Place, graces a top 1% of all podcasts globally and is listened to in over 100 countries. Miriam, welcome. So thanks so much for having me. I'm so glad to be here. Let's start with a very quick conflict of interest disclosure. Is there anyone who is in your book who has paid for inclusion, who has given you compensation in any form? Not at all. In fact, we had to we had to chase people with disclaimer forms, making sure they wouldn't come after me for money later, <laughs> like the legal, that they would not be paid any time in the future either for having their inclusion in the book. Let's start with a really easy question. What are we referring to when we say artpreneur? What does that term refer to? That's a great question. So I refer in this book, artist is anybody who is making a living from their creativity, which makes that definition very broad. So it could, if you're a dancer, if you're a musician, if you're a writer, if you're a ceramicist, but once you make the definition that broad, Elena, then what happens is that really anything can be substituted for what the art is. And we're calling artpreneurs people who are artists and entrepreneurs. So it's anyone who's making a business out of their creative ideas. And when we say sustainable living from your creativity, Tell us a little bit more about what that refers to in the subtitle. Okay. So sustainable living is for, it's not just about making some money here and there. It's not about having a jobby, a hobby that pays you a little bit. It's about having an income. So more than $50,000 a year. A lot of what you talk about in the book is about positive attitudes, thinking of yourself, as you just said now, not just as someone with a hobby that pays you a little bit, but thinking of yourself holistically as an artist and that your work is worthwhile and not just that you're selling to your customers, but that you are providing something worthwhile. Tell us in greater detail, if you would, about why this is such an important perspective. Yeah. And and like you said, it is throughout the entire book. In fact, really at its core, Artpreneur is a self-development book in disguise as a business book for creatives. And even on the very last page, I do a call out that says, look, listen, 
even if you're not making art for money, it still matters because art matters to the world. Art is what gives our life meaning, especially in this pandemic slash post-pandemic world. We've all gone through this existential crisis where art is what gives us meaning, but art only helps when people know about it. And the best way for people to know about it is to market it. So really just driving home that your art matters and what you do matters to the world. How do you get there? Because for a lot, not just for the artists themselves, but a lot of the buyers oftentimes think that it's an indulgence or that it is an unnecessary expense that they have to spend their money on something else. So how do you get to that place where you as the artist, wherever you fall in that very broad spectrum that you've described to us, how do you figure out where you are in that spectrum and how do you become comfortable with that? That's a great question. And that's why I like to introduce the belief triad. So the belief triad, the first two parts, many of us have already heard, you hear about it in in self-development books and business books. And that is you have to believe in yourself. You have to believe in what you're doing. But the third part that people don't tend to talk about is that you have to believe in your buyer. You have to love your buyer. Because if I'm selling you a piece of artwork, Elena. And let's just for just for this, for this example, let's just say it's a $5,000 painting. And you're trying to decide whether or not to buy it. You're not trying to decide if Miriam Shulman's art is worth $5,000. You're trying to decide if you're worth investing $5,000 to get this artwork that you want. And you do this all the time, no matter what the purchase is. So are you worth investing? Maybe it's $5,000. You know, I don't know what it is that you like to buy, but is it $5,000 for a Chanel bag? Is it $5,000 a month for a really nice apartment? So whatever the buying decision is, what's going on in the buyer's mind is they're trying to decide if they are worth investing in. And so this is where you can start to turn the table. So that's why I say you have to love the buyer. You have to trust the buyer. When you make that buying decision, when you are, when you make that selling proposition at you as the artist, as the artpreneur, as the entrepreneur, when you're making it all about yourself and your value, you're forgetting what's going on inside of your buyer's mind. And so you need to love your buyer. You need to believe in your buyer. You need to trust your buyer. In fact, you need to love them and trust them and believe in them perhaps more than they believe in themselves. That sounds tough. How do you do that? All right. Well, there's a lot of uh, work in the book that it is baked throughout about confidence building. But let me just cut through the chase. So what, uh, many people come to me and they know they lack confidence. Uh, one of my students who came to me, she said to me, Miriam, um, you know, I, I, I know what I'm supposed to be doing, but I I keep procrastinating. And I say, why do you think that is? Now in the book, I call her Margaret, not her real name, of course. And I said, Margaret, the problem is it's the other way around. Oh, I said, why, why do you think you procrastinate? And she said, um, it's because I lack confidence. 
And I said, no, it's the other way around. The reason you lack confidence is because you procrastinate. So every time you do what you say you're going to do, you build your confidence. And every time you don't do what you say you're going to do, you erode your confidence. And in fact, if you look up the very definition of confidence, it is self-trust. So every time you don't do what you say you're going to do, you're eroding your self-trust, which erodes your confidence. And the reverse is also true. Now you're really asking, how do you believe in your buyer? Right, Alana? Like that's really the question. Exactly. And, and is it Alana or Elena? I want to make sure I'm saying it right. Elena. Thanks for Elena. Asking. Okay. Um, so Elena, uh, if we think about the movie Pretty Woman, you, have you seen Pretty Woman? Sure. Okay, so we all know that scene where Julia Roberts, they won't, the mean salespeople won't wait on her, right? Remember that scene in the movie? So she goes to Rodeo Drive with her gold card or, or Richard Gere's gold card, and she wants to go shopping. And the woman on the, in the boutique in Rodeo Drive, they won't wait on her. Why? Because they don't think she has the money to go shopping. And that's what it looks like when you don't believe in your buyer. Now, all of us think that we're not being those mean salespeople, but how many times, and this is where it goes back to, you said to me, how do you believe in your buyer? How many times have we said to ourselves, oh, I don't think she'll pay that for, for my fill in the blank, whatever it is, my uh, website design, or I'm just starting out. So I don't think they'll pay that for me. Every time you're doing that, you're judging your buyer and your buyer's ability and your buyer buyer's desire to, to, to get what it is that you're offering. And that's what, what, what not loving your buyer looks like. So you always have to believe in your buyer. Believing in your buyer in a way is believing in yourself. It's an extension. Of well, that. no, it's not because think about the, the, I mean, there's, there's some of that as well. There's having the confidence of saying, this is a $5,000 painting. Okay. Or this is, you know, whatever it happens to be. My website design is $10,000, but believing in your buyer. That's why I like to bring in the pretty woman example, because those women had a lot of confidence in themselves. They didn't, they didn't trust that Julia Roberts had the means to buy from them. So this is what loving your buyer looks like is believing in everybody who comes your, your way is capable of investing and not doubting them. So that's why it's a separate thing. It's a third part of that belief triad. When you are an artist, you might be selling something as affordable, say, as a digital copy of your book that could be priced for under $10 or $5,000 art, or, you know, the sky's the limit. So it's pretty easy to think that your buyer can afford the $5 book, or depending on your buyer's pocket, the 5000 or 500000 or take it up a notch. How do you make that transition? Because, for example, now that you are a published author, right, you're seeing a different side of the art and in the book. And, of course, it's a nonfiction book, but all of the different characteristics, if you will, share something in common, which is, are readers willing to buy my very affordably priced book? Because in most instances, it's 
pretty pretty much within the range of the average person. And so the concept really isn't can the buyer afford it? Does the buyer think he or she is worth the $5, right? It's will are they willing to spend the $5 on my book? Well, you- this here's here's the mistake. We can't make it be about the $5 because this is what you're saying is that it's not always about the price. Let's let's just assume everybody has $5 in their pocket or $9 in their pocket because, you know, that's like the cost of a Starbucks. So it's not about the price anymore. And the biggest mistake a lot of sellers make is they believe that cheaper is easier to sell and that price is the only deciding factor. And it isn't. So that's the problem. It's not it's not only about the price. It's all, it's a lot of other factors go into a buy a purchasing decision. And when we make it all about the price, it becomes a transactional purchase. And for a lot of people that misses the point, they want it to have the experience. Perhaps it's the experience of investing in artwork and what it says about them, that they are the type of person who collects original art, or it's the experience of perhaps, again, taking it away from art, maybe you're the type of person who likes Chanel bags. I act personally am not. So it doesn't matter if the Chanel bag is free or it's $5,000. Either way, I don't want it. So it's not always about the price and cheaper is not easier to sell. So for example, to go back to the book idea, there are a lot of authors, especially indie authors, who will mark down their books to a very low price, say 99 cents, 2.99, even free. What you're saying there is that they're making a mistake because if they do that on a permanent basis, what they're harvesting are people who don't value their work at all. Is that am I understanding correctly? Well, that is true. I mean, that I I don't know if that would be like the extension of what we've been saying, but it is true that most things that we don't pay for, we don't value as much as things we pay for. There are plenty of free things that I have sitting in my inbox now that I've never bothered to open up. And I bet that's true of many people who are listening. So that is true. Uh, but, But it's also the concept that easier is not necessarily easier to sell. So here's an example. If I were to go to you, Elena, and say, hey, I have um, a Rolex watch. It's $49. Do you want to buy it? I guess the question is, do you need a watch? Is it the model of Rolex that you need? Well, most Rolex watches aren't $49. So most people wouldn't want a Rolex watch for $49 because they assume it's fake. Most Rolex watches are going to be $5,000. So if I, even if I were to say to you, hey, it's $400, you probably still would question its authenticity. So that means it would be easier to sell a watch, a Rolex watch, for $5,000 than it would be for $400 or even $49 because people are looking for things that are reassuringly expensive. Now, that begs the question, well, I'm not a Rolex. What does it have to do with me? But it, but we've seen this again and again, and there's mark, there's research to back this up, that people do assign a value based on the price um, in their mind. So they've done blind taste studies for wine, where they said certain wines were priced higher, and they asked people to judge the wine, and if, uh, and time again they would judge 
the higher priced wine as being better quality, even if it was the same wine. So we do have a perception in our mind that if something costs more, it is more valuable. When you're looking at a piece of art, if we look at, a, let's say the, I don't know if that's the traditional model, but the $5,000, uh, I think you said it was a painting that we were talking about. It's pretty much there. You can see it right away. There are other art forms that require more effort, like reading a book or a play or poetry or music. How does this concept relate to the different forms of art and taking into account that it's not always clearly visible as it would be in a canvas? Well, I mean, this is the thing. If you're talking about making a purchasing decision, it's not always about the price. So again, if you want to go back to books and eBooks, the reason that somebody is going to hold back on investing in a book on an eBook is not because they can't afford $9 or they think that that's not the correct price or $12 or $19, whatever the book or, or the eBook happens to be, is they have to make an investment in their time for that. And they know that this is something that's going to also take up space. So when it, when the purchasing decision is no longer about price, you need to give something else in order to market that book or that ebook and make a sale. So it's, it's not good, always good enough to just say it's free or 99 cents. It's not going to help you as an author, get your message out there if they're not going to read it. So you want them to actually have an incentive to read the book. Like what is it that you're offering? What is the transformation? What is the experience that's going to happen having read this book or, you know, whatever it happens to be? And how do you get to that point? Because that's a lot more effortful, despite the, the price barrier, if you say, well, price isn't the issue, it's the investment in time, then how yeah. do you get to that point? Where well, that's, that's a great question. And that's where the testimonials and the book blurbs really come in. Like, so for example, my book, Artpreneur has 104 reviews right now on Amazon. And people can go and read those reviews. If they're doubting if this book is going to work for me, they can look, they can read those reviews about what other people say. And uh, some people do that, some people don't. But I mean, that that's where other things are going to come into marketing a book is what, what have other people said about it? What is the transformation that the person had after reading it? So if I were to ad advise another author about marketing their book, it would be to lean heavily into what feedback is being get, being received, share that in your emails, share that feedback on social media, uh, make sure that people know about it and see it. One of the things that you talk about in the book was the importance of emails. Tell us a little bit about that. A lot of people think that emails are a thing of the past, that they're dead. But over and over again, I hear from people who are in marketing in one way or another, who say that it is the most important tool that they have available to them. This is such an important topic, and I'm so glad you brought it up because I'm so passionate about it. So 
I see it as the other way around. I see social media as like Thelma and Louise about to drive off the cliff. And here is the evidence that backs it up. When I first started writing the book, the average engagement rate of Instagram, which is one of the most popular platforms for artists, was at 1%. By the time I went to edit the book, which was in early 2022, that was a year ago, it had fallen to point. 6%. That means out of a thousand people, only six people are engaging with your post. So what about these influencers? The ones we see always in our, in the ad saying, I'll teach you how to get better engagement rates on Instagram. What is their average engagement rate? The average engagement rate for an influencer on Instagram is still only 1.12%. That means out of a thousand people, only 11 people see it. So how does that compare to email marketing? Well, the average open rate on an email is still 24%. So that means if you have 100 people on your email list, 24 on average, 24 people will open it. That means that you need 4,000 people on Instagram to have the same results on Instagram as you do with 100 people on your email list. And that is why I prefer emails over social media. But that's not all. Here's the biggest difference. If I were to send you an email, Elena, you decide whether or not you're opening that email. If I post that same information on Instagram, the algorithm decides if you even see it. What about issues such as your rights. And by that, I mean some channels or social media outlets reserve the right to use anything that you post in their channels in any way that they choose to sell it, to use it for advertising, to modify it, etc. As an artist, does is that something that concerns you? Do you post photos of your art, etc.? I do post photos of my art that can be a concern to some artists, but there's always the risk of people copying you when you put your art out there. And it's far better to put your art out there and market it than it is to hide it away because you have fears of it being copied. Well, this isn't just copied. It is that the channel itself can use your materials in advertising form or sell it to third parties, etc. Yeah, I can't really comment on the licensing laws of social media. But it's not a major concern for you. No, and I because I because I'm not suggesting that my um, clients are in the book that people use social media, I'm suggesting that they use email marketing, which you have full control over. Now, do you use social media as a form to connect with your potential buyers and your existing buyers and then channel that information or those contacts to your in-person contacts and email. That's what I had understood from the book. Did I misunderstand? No, absolutely. Uh, if you were going to put any effort into social media, it's to be social and to connect with your 
clients, collectors, people who wanted to engage with you. But the whole point of it is to move people who are connecting with you on social media to your email list, which will be your primary channel for then eventually leading them to a sale. What about channels, say, like YouTube or Twitter or Facebook? Any insights you can share on those? I think YouTube is a great channel for engagement. It's a, there's a great community there. It has a beautiful search engine, and it also has a lifespan that's for your effort, something that you post on on these other channels, people aren't going to be scrolling past a week to see it. Whereas anything you put onto YouTube, there is going to have a longer lifespan. As long as you use very good keywords and you have an engaging video, that is a platform that has been very helpful to extending uh, the reach of the, those who are using it properly. Twitter? Oh, I'm, I'm completely out of alignment with Elon Musk, so I, I don't even use it anymore. I won't use it because of his, his hiring practices are not in alignment with my values. You talk about the importance of sharing your points of view about life and politics with your buyers, with your potential buyers, and why you think that those views are essential as you're doing now saying you don't care how good Twitter is, you won't use it because of the person who owns it and his That's right. a, a point of view. How does it tell us a little bit more about that, how that plays a role in you as an, you work as an artist and your work marketing your art? Well, I don't need it. Cause like I said, I'm using, I, for the last 20 years, I have really Twitter has never been an important role in my marketing. And for the last 10 plus years, email marketing has played the major role in my marketing. So I don't need it. But in terms of what you're saying of your point of view, art is never neutral. And this is something that people need to understand that when we see artificial intelligence and chat GPT and all these tools that are coming out, they don't have a point of view. ChatGPT doesn't have an opinion. And the way you can differentiate yourself from, the, the, from artificial intelligence is that you do have a point of view and you do have an opinion. And people want to follow people who have a strong point of view. And we see this across industries, uh, whether we're talking about politics, music, art, thought leaders. We are we are drawn to people who have a strong point of view, which means that you will have people who love what you do and you'll have people who hate what you do, but there actually is no money in the middle. So those who are trying to people please with their messaging because they're worried about turning somebody off, um, that mediocrity isn't going to get them very far, especially in the age of artificial intelligence, because if you're just giving information, AI can do that. Uh, to go back to something that you said, that art is never neutral. So just to use a very basic example, if you're painting flowers, some people would consider that that is a neutral topic. In, in what way is that not neutral? 
Well, let's talk about uh, Renoir and the Impressionists. So they were painting flowers, but that was anything but neutral because they were making a they were making a statement about what art a painting should be and what art should be, and that every stroke should be seen. So art always has a point of view. And in today's environment, in what way is painting flowers? neutral or not neutral you're still having a point of view so is your point of view are you doing watercolor why are you doing watercolor are you doing oil painting um are you making a sculpture so no matter what you create there is going to be a point of view of the art so if you think about fashion fashion always has a point of view you want to know what is what is the collection what it is that's going to drive the artist to create and how it's going to fashion is going to change with culture and society and we may not in the moment see how something could be radical but then the the best art in the world is going to push up against these boundaries well that makes me think of a word that we talked about at the beginning of the conversation where we were discussing the subtitle of your book a sustainable living and the word that comes to my mind in this moment is sustainable because a lot of people consider, for example, that fashion as it is today is not sustainable, that is very wasteful. And some people, artists, think that using acrylics is not a sustainable form of art because it is very bad for the environment. Acrylics are made from plastics and people consider that plastics are harmful to the environment in these days of eco-consciousness. What can you tell us about that? Well, that's true that some artists, maybe their, their values are showing up in their choice of medium. So for many years, I worked in watercolor because it was non-toxic. And, and I, so yes, that's something that can play a role but everyone's going to have their own values. So their values could be that they have more of an environmental core, their values could be in the types of art that they create. Um, their values could just be not necessarily expressed in the art, but it's what they talk about. And people do care about what is the message behind the maker. What makes you think that? Do you think that the majority of buyers really spend a lot of effort understanding all of the beliefs and the philosophies of the artist? Or are they just looking for art that is going to improve in value so that the $10,000 they spend today might be $100,000 in five years? Well, yeah, not all art collectors are going to be looking at it. If you're if you don't care about the values of the art behind it, you'd be happy with a uh, print from home goods. But a lot of people, especially in this culture, do care about the values behind the maker. We see this over and over again with cancel culture, uh, with music, uh, with, you know, what's happened with Kanye. You know, I, I won't listen to Kanye music either anymore because of his anti-Semitic remarks. So yeah, people do care about that. Now, does everybody care about that? No, not everybody cares about that. But the more you can connect with your collector on a either a personal level or a values level, 
then the more they can, they will value your art. So for those artists who want to make a living from their art and not have their art be the lowest common denominator, this is just a pretty flower to put on the wall. That is not going to be as valuable to somebody who really connects with the message and the personality and really wants a piece of what that artist represents to them. And that buying and collecting that art says something about them. And that is what really raises the value in a collector's mind is that they have that Maslow's hierarchy of needs. They have that self-actualization piece about what it is it says about them that they are collecting their art. If it doesn't say anything about them at all and they just want to serve a need, well, toilet paper serves a need. We don't pay a lot for toilet paper. And if you just want to fill your wall, a mirror can do that. So if you want to stand out in the marketplace, you have to show how what it is that you're providing does more than just fills a need, that it makes something either gives provides pleasure or it solves a problem or it says something about the person who is buying or collecting your product or service. In a lot of ways, what I'm hearing you say is that this is a, an extrovert's need that you're addressing meaning you're selling something to them that they can turn around and boast about. I bought art from X Oh, artists. no, it's nothing to do with being extroverted or introverted because you don't have to boast about it. You know yourself. When I, when I buy something, like if I'm wearing underwear, nobody sees that but me some, most, most of the time. Some of the times other people see it. But most, most of the time, I'm the only one who knows what, what underwear I'm putting on. And that can say a lot about me. And I'm the one who knows it. I know whether I am pulling on uh, a pair of Hanes, which is only, you know, $14.97 for a 10-pack. I know whether it's Hanes or something more expensive or something I invested a lot of money in. So it's not about the, the bragging rights. It's about knowing what it is that something does for you, maybe, you know, a lotion that smells good or um, something that's very personal. So it does not have, to, it's not about boasting at all. Isn't it about boasting for a lot of people? It could be for some people. It could be, but it doesn't have to be. Are you saying that part of what you're selling as an artist is you? You're, you, you are selling a piece of you as an artist, but you also are selling what that person is investing in. So to bring it full circle, remember I said, if, I selling, if I'm selling you a painting that's $5,000, you're not trying to decide if I'm worth it, if this painting is worth it. You're deciding if you are worth it. And part of that is understanding what it says about you that you're investing in this artwork for whatever reasons, because what either what the message is about my art, what it's going to look like, the pleasure it's going to give you. So all the things that it means to you and for every person, that's a very personal decision. So it could be that you're, you're doing it to brag, but it could be because it just gives you a lot of pleasure. So here, here's a great example. My mother has one teacup um, that is Royal Copenhagen that has an S on it. She doesn't do it to brag. She has it every day. She, she pours herself her tea and she, it gives her so much pleasure to drink from that teacup, but nobody's seeing her do it. Now for somebody else, that could be something they brag about. They could set their whole table with Royal Copenhagen. So it's very personal why 
somebody is going to be motivated to buy. In the book Artpreneur, I go through 14 different lessons that unpacks all the different buyer psychology. And through that chapter, I point out again that this is not for everybody, but these are potential triggers that could be your buyer's motivation and to be aware of all of them. Well, when I when I say that part of what you're selling is you, it, this idea of sharing your philosophy with your customers, explaining what this represents or what you were inspired by. You talk about some of those things in the book, if I recall correctly. That is part of you that you're sharing. This is what will help them in make, making their decision. Is that right? That's right. That's right. That's correct. And so being neutral takes away from that because part of that purchase involves the interaction with you and the knowledge of what is behind the backstory of the art, if you will. Right. And if you're trying to appear as neutral, first of all, people will make assumptions anyway. So you might as well let them make the assumptions, whether they like you or dislike you for the right reasons. A lot of people, you know, when you said that, whether they like you or they don't like you, what made me, what reminded me was people who continue reading, say, uh, books from a given author or watching a television series beyond its prime or the author's prime, if you're reading a book, or listening to music from, quote unquote, a favorite artist or band, not so much because you're really enjoying the music or the stories in the book or the television series, or it could be series of films now that they are making sequels, but because it's familiar, because it's easy and you put so much effort into it already, what do you think about that? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, during the pandemic, when the first in 2020, I started reading Harry Potter for, for again, like I decided I would read all seven books. And the reason is because I found it very comforting to not read something where I didn't know the ending. So that was something that gave me a lot of comfort. And then when I finished the books and the pandemic wasn't over, I just started reading them again. And I was discussing this with somebody uh, who is a therapist. And she says, oh, actually, a lot of her patients have been watching Harry Potter movies and not necessarily Harry Potter movies. But exactly what you're saying, Elena, is that they are uh, they're returning to things because it gives them comfort because it's familiar. And because it's also easier if you want to make a change that requires effort. And during the pandemic, many of us were ego depleted. Some are still ego depleted. So finding a new fill in the, the blank artist, a movie, a series, a quote unquote universe is very effortful. So just staying with something that was familiar, didn't present challenges, didn't present effort and if you look, for example, at the bestseller lists, I don't know, familiar with the canvas or painting world and whether there are bestseller lists like we see for books, but we see the same handfuls, I don't know, dozens of creators 
over and over again. And that is part of the reason, according to analysts, is because it's easier. Yes. This is, if I understand correctly, the philosophy of streaming services where you describe some of the music that you like, or I think someone's doing this with podcasts and movies now, and they make suggestions of things that you're going to like so that you don't have to invest your time and effort in someone else, in this case, a software, will do it for you. But that doesn't mean that somebody who is an artist or an author or a thought leader should be copying what's most popular because they're, they can't hope to compete with what's already popular. And the only chance they can have of rising above it is to offer something new and different and interesting. So in a way, it's a form of being a disruptor or even revolutionary, this entrepreneurial discussion that we're having. Is that right? That's right. And you see this for everything. So, uh, you know, with weight loss, you can't just be uh, keto, keto, keto. Then all of a sudden people are bored with that. And they'll, no, no, it's not keto anymore. It's carb cycling. No, 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 it's not carb cycling. It's uh, plant-based. So when you will see that people will get attention because they're trying to offer an alternative to what people are bored of. And we see this also in art. So the abstract expressionist movement lasted about 10 years and that got pushed aside by pop art. We see this in music. Disco gets pushed aside. We have grunge that gets pushed aside. So people are always looking for something new. Now, does that mean that people don't return to the music that they liked 10, 20 years ago? Of, of course, it doesn't mean that. But if you are a, someone who's new and you want to make a sustainable living now, then it's going to be very hard to, to stand out if you're just offering what is the same as everybody else. Where does the in-person interaction come into this equation? Because from what I remember in your discussion in the book, that was a really important thing. You, you talked about when there was a, a show, an exhibit, you always made a point of being there and connecting with buyers or prospective buyers. Well, it, people are just craving connection, especially, uh, you know, after the years of the, of the lockdown. But even before that, if, if we understand that what people most want from an artist is a piece of the art, is a piece of you, then the best way to have them connect with that is to meet you. So if you can't have that, if you can't meet with them in person, then you have to go to the next best thing. So again, tying it all up. That's why on social media, it's not enough just to post a pretty flower picture. You have to talk to the people who are engaging with you, engage with them. But the best way to engage with people, the best way to form that, it, that connection is in person. That will be the highest form of connection. What do you say to those artists who are shy or who are afraid that they're not going to resonate with the audience? How do they overcome that? That's a great question and one that I get asked a lot. And the good news is that introverts make the best 
listeners. And the number one skill you need when you're selling is to be a good listener. In fact, there's one saying that I like to say, and that is that the person who talks the most actually loses. So when you're in a selling situation, it's about asking questions. And the, the best way to connect with people is when they first walk into your space, whether you are selling clothing or you're selling art, or even if you're a waitress is, hi, I'm Miriam, what's your name? Is to connect with them. I find that in restaurants, I get better service when I ask them their name if they haven't given it to me already. And to really connect with people as humans, see people as humans. And that starts with introducing yourself and finding out who they are. What motivated you to share your insights and your experience and all these step-by-step tips and perspectives on this issue. Some people might look at it and say, well, you're creating competition. Why would you do that? Well, as we already talked about, it's only competition if their art is exactly the same as mine. And I do believe that there's room for more than one artist. Just like if I was a Mexican restaurant, I don't, I wouldn't feel competition from another Mexican restaurant. As somebody who likes to eat, I like to go to all the restaurants. So it, it's not like I would stop going to a restaurant just because there's another restaurant. And you asked me, why did I write this book? So what matters a lot to me, we talked about your art mattering and it only matters if people know about it. And one of my motivators as an artist has always been about creating legacy. When I was a portrait artist for 20 years, I was creating portraits of my clients that would become a piece of their heirloom, part of their family. It would create a bit of immortality for the person I was painting, a little bit of immortality for myself because it was going into their homes When I was an art teacher, I was creating a legacy, teaching other people my techniques. And there I was actually teaching people how I did it. I was never threatened then about being in competition with my students. And now I have all this knowledge to share about how I built my business. And I know there's so many artists who need it. And especially in 2020, when I first started thinking about writing the book, there were all these artists who were depending on these in-person shows and that market completely fell out from under them. And they had not built the email list that we had talked about. And they were relying on social media, which worked a little bit. It worked in the beginning of 2020, but now it just doesn't quite work the way it was, not only because of the things that we talked about already, but people just aren't on the platform anymore. So in 2020, I really dove deep into helping my clients in the artist incubator really have those long-term skills that are going to work no matter what social media platform comes along next. If they rely on traditional marketing, and that includes in-person, email marketing, and even, we haven't touched upon this, but even physical mailing because there's no spam filter in front of your front door. So giving them the skills that they needed so that they could thrive no matter what social media fad comes along next and no matter what 
the economy is so they can survive throughout this pandemic. Hopefully we won't live for this again, but really to have those skills so that they could have a sustainable business in their life that will help them year after year. I don't want to take this information with me to the grave. I want to create this legacy and leave it all behind so I can impact as many people and help as many people as possible. What do you think makes an artist stand out compared to another artist? Not quite the same way, perhaps, as a Mexican restaurant versus a Korean restaurant versus a burger joint, or maybe that is it. But what comes to mind is that if you think, for example, about music, it isn't the person who has classical training or has perfect vocal range. It isn't the person who is the best with grammar or composition. It's, for example, the best storyteller. How does that translate into this conversation that we're having? What makes one artist stand out? Not necessarily the technique, you were talking about watercolor uh, earlier, or whether you can work with acrylic versus gouache, uh, charcoal, and the list goes on. There's something that makes an artist more desirable. Is it, for example, imperfection versus perfection? It comes back, this, the most important thing is when it, com what it comes back to, we talked about earlier, is what is their point of view. And what I talk about inside Artpreneur is actually about embracing your inner weirdo, embracing that, that very thing that's going to make you stand out. So you're going beyond your influences. You're not just chips and salsa. You know, is it mango salsa? Is it, does it have cilantro in it? So even when you're talking about restaurants, I mean, Mexican versus Mexican, there's going to be a, a strong point of view is what's going to make it stand out. Uh, so talking about the different steps, and I offer nine of them in Artpreneur of how to stand out, but it's about amplifying your quirks. And we talked about er earlier, not people pleasing, not trying to please everybody, but really having that sh uh, strong point of view and showing up in a way, um, not worrying about if people are going to like you more, but being authentically you. We, we talked about sharing your values, making sure that you are honest about what it is you believe. People will connect with that if you don't share you va your values they will make assumptions either way. So you might as well let them make an, a point of, make an opinion about you based on what you truly believe. Embrace those things that might be imperfect about you. One of the examples I give an artpreneur is Britney Spears. Now in 2023, that doesn't sound like a radical example. But when she first came out, nobody was doing those types of Valley Girl talk that she was doing. And like you mentioned, they, they could have classically trained that out of her, but they decided not to, her vocal coach and the people around her decided not to, and actually to emphasize it even more. And that became very popular then. Now there's so many people who have copied her. We don't see that as being a radical style anymore. But when she first came out, that style was radical. 
another thing that we haven't talked about in terms of really embracing what makes you more marketable, more different is to honor what comes easy for you. There's things that come easy to all of us that we may be dismissing, but those are the very things that we really need to emphasize and bring out, open yourself to feedback. And there's a couple more steps, but they, I guess they can find that in Artpreneur. How do you compete with artificial intelligence? Now you have systems that can create human images. For example, I was just reading, I think it was a Wall Street Journal article that talked about how easy it's become to using an app, create the image of a human that doesn't exist. And of course, art. How do you distinguish your art from these variations on art, which are have become increasingly controversial? If AI creates a song, can you copyright it? Is it unique? So, again, art has to have a point of view. Now, that's going to fall into the hands of the creator. Now, the creator might be the one who's wielding AI as a tool, but AI cannot does not have a point of view on its own. So if you go to chat GPT and you say, which is better hamburgers or hot dogs, it can't tell you, it doesn't have a point of view on its own. When I've looked at images created by, I think it's Lenza, Lenza.ai. There was a, there was a phase for a while of these AI generated selfies. They all look the same to me. There were these purple hair and everyone looked like a superhero and all the data that's going into these AI tools, whether it's ChatGPT or the image-based ones, a lot of them are based on data that is several years old. And so they're creating something that is very same, same. Now, if your art it ha does not lack a point of view, does not have a point of view, it's just a pretty flower, maybe you have something to be scared about if your art doesn't have a point of view. If your art has a strong point of view, if it does more than just be a, an AI-generated tool, then you have nothing to worry about. What do you mean in the book when you say sell happy endings? Okay, great question. So a lot of times when you go for marketing advice, they will say that your, your art, your product, your service has to solve a problem. The, the problem with that kind of advice is that we said earlier, toilet paper solves a problem. And if you're an artist, uh, what's the problem? A blank wall? Well, a mirror solves that problem. So you have to go beyond that and really share how will your product or service or whatever it is you're selling gives pleasure. So if I were promoting, again, Harry Potter, I would never say, uh, watch this movie. It alleviates boredom. That's the problem it's solving. It's what is the pleasure that this is giving you? That's this happy ending that you need to promote. What is the pleasure? And the pleasure ostensibly could be a, a form of horror because for the That's person correct. who's watching. That's correct. It does not have to be all rainbows and daisies. So for some people, they like emo music or horror movies. So it does not mean that it has to be something that's nice, nice. It's just satisfying that pleasure, whatever that is, that the consumer 
of the art is deriving. Correct. What, how would you judge your success in terms of the book or this general conversation that we're having, which is a bigger picture conversation, this legacy of sharing your knowledge for the future? How will you determine whether you've been successful or how successful you've been? That's a great question and one that I struggle with. So I've set the bar very high. So we, we've, we're two months after the publication date that we're recording this. It's the almost the end of March and the book came out the end of January and we've sold 3000 copies. But my goal is to sell enough books that the book actually gets what's known in the publishing industry as backlisted, which means it's something that the publisher will continue to print and produce because I want this book to do more than just be a tool for my own career. I want this to be a book that people can turn to five years from now, 10 years from now for solid marketing advice to help them with their creative career. What tips would you share with our listeners, say, I don't know, three tips that they can take with them after they've listened to our conversation, if they remember three things on how to launch, or maybe they've, they're already out there, but they're not finding the financial success that they want, this sustainable living from your creativity that we talked about at the beginning. What three action steps would you share with them? Okay. That's a great question. I'm glad we're ending the podcast with this. So the first thing is to create a separate business bank account. You want a bank account that's separate from your personal. This creates both a physical and a mental container. It tells you, it tells the world, it tells your bookkeeper that you are in business for real. This is how you make your business real. The second step we've already talked about, focus on building an email list. It is far easier to find 100 humans to add to your email list than 4,000 followers on Instagram who may not even see your content. And then finally, I want to end with this, and that is keep marching forward. There are going to be times when you think you're doing all the things and you're still not seeing the results that you want. So you need to not blame your boots, not blame the circumstances, don't march in place, but to keep taking forward progress, putting one foot in front of the other and your results will follow. Miriam, thank you for joining us from New York City. Well, thank you for having me. This was so much fun. And to our audience, you have been listening to Miriam Schulman, who is author of Entrepreneur, the step-by-step -step guide to making a sustainable living from your creativity, who discussed marketing lessons from Artpreneur. To propose a guest for the show, you can email me directly at editor at hispanicmpr.com. That's editor at hispanicmpr.com.